0: Father God, we come before you this morning with, in one sense, a simple simple pattern that has been repeated for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. We look to your word, and in the power of your word is the power to break the patterns of sin, but also to establish new patterns of righteousness. For your name's sake. And so through a simple thing, through the simple preaching of your word, would you do something miraculous in us this morning? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you, not all of you, have broken a cycle and pattern this morning. Some of you maybe read the front of the bulletin and said, "Ah, I'm not going to listen to that. I like my spot. It's okay if you did, because even three of my children, as you can see, did not read that little front part of the bulletin and listen to it. And that's okay, because it's not, thus saith the Lord. I was just trying to challenge the congregation to break a simple pattern, a simple routine that, we maybe fall into so that I can kind of look at the Kratz, for instance, today or the Polichettis, or at least two of my family and my wife and my daughter, Caitlin, and say they've broken a pattern. They've gone somewhere that they when they came into this room, they didn't originally want to go, but they decided to, to follow that. And that's a good thing. The Bible is full of patterns. Actually, even part of our hope in the next Three weeks as Bruce and I are in Genesis chapter uh, thirty-seven is we hope that you will see in this chapter patterns that won't lead you to say, "Oh, I really wish those pastors had Lenten sermons or an Easter sermon or a or a Palm Sunday sermon." Because there are actually threads in this chapter that connect to the story of Christ that are more greatly fulfilled in the life of Christ and we hope that by the end of these next three sermons in this chapter you will see some of those connections. That you will see some of the patterns and routines. And so that is kind of the hope. In one sense I was thinking about the job of uh, even a pastor this week and the, the job of a pastor, a good and faithful pastor, is to encourage people to break sinful patterns and to establish patterns of righteousness. And that's a hard task because we are in, in, hardwired in us are routines or kind of things that we have established as they need to happen this way. And involved in that is the fact that pattern after this world, we have fallen into sin and so... Even the wiring of ourselves lends itself to patterns of wickedness and unrighteousness. So, and then there's other patterns, patterns like where you sit in a church. It's not necessarily right or wrong. But we are called here to fall into, hopefully, more patterns of godliness, to be more firmly planted in representing the image of God in which we were first created. And the reality is, the simple proclamation of the church is that the only tradesman, Zach Stike was just telling me this week how he's going to be rewiring or or wiring an entire house this summer. But the only tradesman who can really deal with the most problematic patterns in in our own life, the rewiring that we need, is the name of Christ, and yet we get uncomfortable with a, in the practice of allowing Jesus to really reorient those wires, reorient those patterns. We fall into the trap of liking the status quo. We find the pattern of a, living a more faithful and godly life, of, of, of boldly holding to it, too difficult to do. We'd rather become our own little gods and justify our wiring just as it stands. We tend to try to put up walls and lock doors and stop God from getting into certain places and into the wiring of our lives. Now our passage this week begins with the, the tenth and final division of the book of Genesis. And there's this Hebraic pattern that happens ten times in Genesis And to get here, to get to chapter thirty seven, we actually skipped over chapter thirty six. And actually chapter thirty six is very important into understanding chapter thirty seven. But it can be summed up simply. Chapter thirty six is all about Esau, Jacob's brother. Jacob, of course, being the one in whom God loved, Esau the one in whom God hated uncomfortable reality and yet that's what the word of God declares and in chapter 36 verse 8 I believe Esau is shown to have settled in the land he's gotten very comfortable with the world and the patterns of the world and yet then here in verse in chapter 37 verse 1 Jacob is the sojourner Jacob just like his father before him has not firmly settled in the patterns of this world you could say in one sense there are two patterns in life that we can fall into as people created in the image of god we can follow the pattern of esau which Consistently gets more and more comfortable in settling into the matters, the thought patterns, the lifestyles, the the, the way you should go that the world upholds is good. Or you can be, just as Rob referenced the verse from Peter's epistle in the New Testament, you can be a part of that group of sojourners and exiles in this life. That yeah, maybe in this life, we don't have a land that we can kind of settle into in a world we can settle into and entirely embrace and entirely feel comfortable with. But we look to the promises to come with hope, with joy, and we pattern our lives more and more to be less grounded in worldly practice and, and, and more grounded in the good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the life and better promise to come. So this covenant family has no place to be settled as we begin our chapter here. And we need to remember that pattern as Christians. Because sin is coming at us in technicolor these days. And yet the difference between those who are gods is that they will battle the tension of Not wanting to do the things that they should not do. And yet, as even these passages, this section of Genesis makes clear, sometimes we fall in the trap of doing. They will live like a sojourner. Or, for those who are not of God, they will finally surrender to that temptation. They will become hardened to the things of God. And so in verse chapter 1 of Genesis 37, we see the nomadic reality made clear. Jacob was not settled in this land. He was only a sojourner, setting hope on a greater land to come. Just like his father before him, who we pointed out last week, is still alive at this moment. And so right at the start, a helpful question to ask is, how comfortable are you in the world? Or maybe what would others say is your comfort level in the world? It's not that people who are of the world aren't troubled by the world at times. It's that they don't see the tension that God can only relieve. They don't recognize the only tradesman who can change the wiring of our very hearts. I've noticed a shift in pastoral ministry, especially in the last couple of years. More and more people feel less settled in the world currently that I, I, I'm involved with. And I and ironically, I, I kind of find that encouraging. I had a friend, he, he's in ministry, he called me up this week, and he was just delighting in the fact that the contrast of this present age are are so clear. And that he could see the wisdom of God basically unfolding before his very eyes why we hope for a better place to come. You can divide humanity itself alongside the differences of Esau being settled in chapter 36 and Jacob being a sojourner in chapter 37 one settled into this world finding great comfort and peace and all that this world could provide the other was not so settled in this world and constantly had to look forward to greater promises to come that the lord had made for a better land for a better home for a better place to come and so we begin finding ourselves at jacob's house but jacob's house is not settled yet his room is not a permanent room yet and yet and so jacob is not settled in his house Because we aren't supposed to be settled in this world. This is not the room that is but prepared for us by the hands of our Savior. And then we pivot to verse 2. And we begin to look at his son, Joseph. Joseph, who was the first son of his favored wife, Rachel, who has died by this time. And where is Joseph? Joseph is out in the shepherd's fields. Well, when we tend to think of the great shepherd boy of the Old Testament, we think of David a thousand years before David, Joseph was. And even before Joseph, who was the first shepherd boy of all Scripture, Abel. And interesting enough, the pattern of Abel's brother hating him will be followed by the pattern of the shepherd boy, Joseph, being hated by his own brothers. And who is the great shepherd who was hated by his own kinsmen. And so we have this individual. He is... uh, God loves to break patterns and habits through the work of shepherds. It's one of his favorite approaches. And so that is a, a foreshadowing of what's about to take place here. So back into the pattern of our story today. It's clear in verse 2, this son Joseph is unique amongst his brothers. He's actually out in the fields with four of his other brothers. And yet, his other brothers, while they're out in the field as shepherds alongside of him, they aren't referenced by God, uniquely singled out by God's word, as a true shepherd. He's the only one of the five uniquely distinguished as a shepherd through God's word. And you're going to have to just take my word for this. But when it actually comes to verse 2 of Genesis 27, there are actually two legitimate ways to translate this verse. And uh, I think God is intentional to have two different ways that you can translate this verse in the Hebrew. It's left open-ended. And I think it's on purpose. You can either translate this as the ESV has. As Joseph was pastoring the flock with his brothers. That's true if the word there is a preposition. Uh, Maybe I should get away from that stuff. But if the word is in the accusative, the translation would be, Joseph was shepherding his brothers. Joseph was shepherding his brothers. I would guess that Moses allowed the Hebrew to be intentionally vague in order that we might see the wisdom in both options. Yes, technically Joseph was doing the actual job of shepherding alongside his brothers, and yet Joseph had a unique degree of headship within this family. He is going to be the shepherd boy who blesses this family that made him stand out amongst the brothers that he was also the shepherd of the brothers. And how will Joseph's story unfold? Joseph will be found as a great shepherd that helps move his family from fields of famine, both spiritually and physically, into lands where there is more than plenty of both grace and sanctification. The fortunes of the family will be blessed because of the wisdom of the young shepherd boy Joseph who uses the wisdom of God in order to tend to the lands that God will put at his disposal. So in verse 2, Joseph is doing the very things as a teenager he will also do as an adult. Caring and providing for those who depend upon him, whether we're talking about brothers, whether we're talking about his larger family, or even the nation's. Joseph is a ray of hope in the collection of brothers who thus far and still will be found embracing patterns of sin. Within the sacred arrangement of Genesis, we've already seen the eldest sons of Reuben, of Simeon, of Levi, show their faithlessness to their father, Israel, who was once called Jacob. Notice his pattern continues even with these four brothers Joseph was out in the fields with. Something happened as Joseph was shepherding alongside these four brothers that Joseph, in being faithful to his father, informed his father of. Now, we grew up with the idea of not being a tattletale, and I was very disappointed this week in how many commentaries want to attribute sin to Joseph at this time. And, and at other times, even in sharing the dream. In the passage, Joseph is in rarefied air in Scripture. He is a dreamer who has no overt sin that we can see laid out before us in the Old Testament text. The only other one is also a fellow dreamer in Daniel. I, if if you've ever kind of heard this story, trying to to say Joseph's the tattletale and the braggart, I'm telling you. The young shepherd boy, there is nothing I could see in the textual evidence that really lent itself to taking that view. I actually think it's a problematic view and a view that doesn't understand what Joseph's role is going to be for the family. So far, what has Jacob's story been in life? It has been a story chock full of family betrayal by his father, by his brother by his father-in-law, by his first wife, Leah, by his own sons, Reuben, Levi, and Simeon. There has been a pattern, a betrayal within the family. And so are we really going to suggest that Joseph, letting his father know his brothers are caught up in something dishonorable, they live in a shame and honor culture, is something that's wrong? <clears throat> well, some of you have noticed... We technically have not, you know, we're in a period of Scripture where there aren't the Ten Commandments, where there aren't the great many laws of Moses. The reality is we still have the law upon our hearts. These individuals had the law upon our hearts. And the shepherd boy, who is also a shepherd of his brothers, is now coming to his father, who is the authority. What do we do if we hear somebody making wicked plans, evil schemes, these sorts of things. What are we to do? We are to first go to them, and then if they will not hear us, we might go to others. And And there is a pattern for this, a pattern within the church, and a pattern even to sometimes bring it to the government itself. It was true back then, before it was written down um, by the by Moses and it's still true today because it speaks to uh, our conscience we know this we have the moral law upon our hearts and this family this covenant family has been taking for granted the promises of God they have been not living in the awesome reality that they enjoy realize this family is the only family that God has this unique intimate relationship with in all the earth and yet they're living like the world They pattern their life like the world. And it's Joseph, the young shepherd boy, who's going to break into this family and help redeem this family. He's going to serve in one sense almost as a kinsman redeemer. Joseph is in his shepherding role. And so, I I even thought about, and, and Rob quoted this downstairs before the service but I thought about Proverbs 27 verse 6 the word of God says it's the enemy it's the Esau's of the world who are going to see your sinful patterns and come up to you and cover you with kisses and say these patterns are good for you these patterns are great let's embrace them let's write it down let's celebrate and let's clap to them and yet the more faithful brother the more faithful shepherd The more faithful individual, the more faithful friend is the one who's willing to wound you. Willing to share the hard word. Willing to hold up the word of God and say, this is the word of God and we need to pattern ourselves after it. Because we are covenant children of God. So, do not make the mistake Of thinking that Joseph is being a tattletale. Then moving into verse 3. Another pattern is shown. The pattern of a father loving one son more than any other. Israel, once known as Jacob, knew this pattern well. It, it led to the great conflict of his life. He knew the pattern. And, and, and how this pattern unfortunately led to a jealousy. Led to a pattern of sin. And I think we can say here that Jacob, Israel, is being unwise in this moment. And yet, all, what he ultimately did is he gave this son a covering that distinguished him from all other sons. And I don't think we want to take even criticism of Jacob too far here. Because, and I was thinking about the Pharisees in saying this. Wasn't likely one of the problems the Pharisees, the sons of Israel, who know the Bible word for word, the Old Testament word for word, wasn't part of their problem with Jesus? The fact that they had been trying in their own works to adorn their own filthy rags with enough, try to clean them enough in order to justify themselves before God. And then here comes Jesus. The son of God God incarnate God in flesh God in perfect humanity and he has a righteousness and a goodness and a holiness that distinguishes him as unique among the sons of Israel unique among the children of God and what do they do they hate him for his righteous covering they would not follow him They would not listen to Him as a shepherd. They would rather kill Him and cast Him off and do away with Him. And yet, the the very Gospel itself is tied into the fact that we have a Heavenly Father who is so pleased in His one Son, His only Son, His perfect son Son, that we too, as a byproduct, can be ushered into the greater promised land to come to be saved by Him. So let us not protest Jacob's unique love for Joseph too much. And so in an infinitely lesser sense, I would suggest that likewise, the brothers of Joseph felt as Israel adorned his one son uniquely from all others. They basically felt naked before him. Just like the Pharisees would have felt naked in their righteousness before Christ betrayed for in their schemes they wanted to be lifted up they wanted to be the ones that received the unique blessings they wanted to be set apart 21 times in this chapter of the bible will the word brother will be repeated and yet brotherly love will not be found brotherly hate will seek to undo that which is uniquely set apart and so, verse 4 makes clear Joseph, the son now adorned uniquely by Israel, is hated by those who are jealous of that which adorns him. And by the end of verse 4, they have been so consumed with hate that they no longer will speak peaceably to him. They're, the words, their words are like poison before them. We've all fallen into that trap, haven't we? It's an ugly thing, isn't it? when we allowed hate to get so carried away, when we allow wicked thoughts to devour us like a lion, that all we can offer as somebody made in the image of God is frustration, anger, and other forms of rudeness. Do you hate anyone in your life like that today? Have you made a pattern in hating someone to such a degree that that's true of you? Has that worldly pattern been good for you? Have you been like Esau and loved that pattern? We need to have the courage to break those vicious patterns, those vicious cycles. Rely on God. Step out in boldness. Come to make restoration and restitution. For God loves to break such cycles and patterns. Ungodly anger is something that only really hurts the holder of it infinitely more than the object of it. Let those patterns of anger go. And watch love flourish instead as you cling to grace and mercy. We'll soon see the great famines that can arise when families surrender the fields of their household to division and hate rather than the courage to sow in love and grace. And then in verse 6 begins a unique development in the book of Genesis. Up until this point in Scripture, God has had five times where he's come to someone in a dream and he's spoken directly to them. Abraham, Abimelech, uh, Jacob twice, and Laban. Now, God is in these dreams, and for the rest of the book, the dreams are going to have symbols and imageries. In one sense, it's the beginning of uh, almost a prophetic kind of dream. Joseph is almost a unique prophetic interpreter being initiated here. This unique shepherd boy is going to begin sharing prophecy on behalf of God. And so while some commentaries will call Joseph here a blabbermouth, who is giving Joseph these visions? Is it not God? Is he not sharing the visions that he has received from God, the revelation that God has provided him? So how can we call him a blabbermouth? He knew that this was going to come at a cost. He's not a fool. He knows his brothers are already unable to speak peaceably to him, and yet he has the courage of a good shepherd boy. He has the courage, even when his brothers are being openly hostile to them, berating him, criticizing him, basically making it in a sport of ridiculing him, to share still what God has revealed. There is no honor in sharing some, in not, in refusing to share something God has clearly revealed and wanted you to share. This son will be the son in whom all other sons of Israel, as this revelation will show, must bow down to and worship. And verse 8 makes clear that as Joseph revealed this idea given by God, the other sons of Israel hated him all the more. They despise this dreamer, this favored son of Israel. And then Joseph dreams again in verses 9 and 10. And I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but there's a lot of pointless speculation that wonders about who's being referred to as Joseph's mother because Rachel has passed by this time. And I'm not going to dive into it, but the answer is Leah. Leah's being Referenced here. Remember this is prophecy and so while this prophecy will have a fulfillment in Joseph in the story of Joseph's life the ultimate place this prophecy points to is actually the story of the ultimate lion of the line of Judah that is Jesus who would come from the line of Leah and Jesus will be the only true descendant of Israel who deserves for eternity All honor and true worship forever. And so as the passage closes, the son of Israel continue to find more and more reasons to hate the favored son of Israel. Though this faithful shepherd boy, this son of God, as they continue to hate him and hate what God is revealing to them. And they establish this pattern of rejecting God and his word and his messenger Still, Joseph is faithful. He is the faithful son. Even his father, as it shows, rebukes him at this moment. Even his father finds this prophecy too hard to hear. I was just talking with a pastor, and it wasn't anybody affiliated with this church. And the pastor was declaring the simple reality that he knows in this flocky shepherding what God's Word clearly says, but he also knows that his congregation doesn't like it. And so he was trying to wrestle, trying to justify the, the idea that you should just let the sheep be sheep. Let's just give up this topic. And it is a sexual revolution kind of topic. Let's just surrender this topic within our church. Because then all of us sheep will be happy. And what he fails to do, he hates the sheep when he does that. He fails to have the courage of a shepherd. The word of God is not here for you always to like the patterns of life it calls you to. The word of God is here though to break down those sinful patterns of your life in order to reestablish yourself in the patterns of godliness you want to settle in the world, you want to live like Esau, then go live like Esau, but do not pretend that you are a sojourner looking forward to a greater promise and a greater word and a greater hope. <sighs> sermon broke out there. And when we Christians have that kind of courage, the courage not to hold back in the face of ridicule and mockery, the courage not to hold back in the face of hate, lies, and wickedness, we begin to reflect the perfect image of the true Son of Israel, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the breaker of the patterns of sin and evil that we allow into our lives, that we allow to take up residence in our lives. But He is also the great revealer of the perfect righteousness of God, that the patterns of our life should follow. Our rest is not found in the barren lands of this life. Do not get so comfortable sitting in the same sinful patterns and routines of belief. Rather, get up and serve the Heavenly Father, whose gracious and sacrificial Son is preparing us for a greater promised land. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we, the covenant family of God, often fall into routines and patterns that are unworthy of you. Give us courage to heed the word of the great and perfect shepherd, Son, that is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.